The great thing about Jonah, as you were listening to Elise and Cindy and Adam narrate it for us, is that it really could be said that in these four short uh, uh, dramatic chapters, we really see in microcosm the grand redemptive historical arc that we all see in Scripture. Let me unpack that for you. You notice that it begins with God's call to Jonah and Jonah running away from the Lord. And really all through the book, it's Jonah kind of getting away from God. And when you think about it, isn't that not the essence of sin that we constantly are running from God? And throughout the book of Jonah, God is constantly pursuing His servant. Is that not the essence of grace? that we run from God in our sin, and in His grace, He pursues us. And we see that all through the book of Jonah, humanity running, God pursuing, sin and grace, all played out in just four dramatic, quick chapters. And between these grand themes of sin and grace and a a citywide repentance and the drama of a great fish and, and the raging seas, do you notice the narrative constantly highlights this intimate relationship between the Lord and one of His own. I mean, Jonah records massive realities, the fortunes of nations and entire people's groups, yet God constantly through the narrative is trying to bring along Jonah little by little and change his heart. It's easy to miss those things and all the, the grandeur and excitement of this book. I mean, if, you, if I can use the, the metaphor of a camera lens, the lens of this camera continues to, to zoom out and zoom in and zoom out and zoom in. Do you notice that? In chapter 1, it starts off with this, this wide, pan, wide angle view as the call of God to Jonah comes to proclaim uh, this message to a great city, the drama of a raging seas and the sailors crying out to God. And in chapter 2, the camera zooms in on Jonah. He's just by himself alone, crying out in the belly of a fish. And then the camera zooms back out in chapter 3 as the word of the Lord comes again to Jonah a second time. And then we see a citywide repentance and revival, and then the camera zooms back in in chapter 4. And it's Jonah, alone, swallowing a bitter pill as God is trying to change his heart. So in these four chapters, it goes universal, personal, universal, personal. Friends, and just right there, that is much like the Christian life and the way the gospel works, doesn't it? That God is constantly working out this big picture that many of us are even unaware of, nor could even understand, yet He's constantly trying to bring you along. That the gospel has massive implications for all of humanity, but it begins with massive implications for the man or woman that will embrace this message for himself or herself. So we see kind of in these, the structure of Jonah in some sense, the way really things God keeps working on massive scales, yet personal scales. Yet for all that Jonah has to teach us in this way, we often lose it, lose these realities, because we're very familiar with this story, especially if you grew up in a church, you're very familiar with the story of Jonah and familiar with it in some unhelpful ways. So, for example, if you grew up in the early 2000s or if you had young kids like Lori and I did in the early 2000s, or if you were a grandparent, what you see when you think of Jonah is basically this picture, right? I mean… (laughs) 
So, so these grand gospel narratives in my mind is always forever played out by a cucumber or a tomato, right? And, and so we think of Jonah in these kind of cutesy ways, but if Hollywood were to make another Jonah film, it would certainly not be a kid's film. It would be an R rating for sure. I mean, you have the, the, the explosive racism of the Ninevites and the Israelites coming against each other. And then you have this horrifying, and the Bible uses such a euphemistic word as a, as a great fish. But this has got to be some kind of sea animal to swallow a man whole. You kind of think, what kind of sea creature could that be? It could be a, a megalodon, I mean, for one thing, right? But, but, I mean, look at the size of that shark. But now, I'm not a paleoanthropologist, but I do know there probably wasn't megalodons in existence at the time of Jonah's writing. So maybe it was a basking shark, right? These things are alive today. You see up in the upper corner, there's a man swimming next to it. Look at that thing. I mean, could you imagine being thrown in the ocean and that is coming up to get you? Man, that's like, that's, that's like stressful just looking at that. <laughs> Friends, I mean, I would throw my own kid in its way before it got to me. I mean, <laughs> no, I'm not that. I'd throw somebody else's kid in the way first. But, I mean, the point is, that's a horrifying reality. And then you have this crude and angry prophet for sure. So altogether, this would not be a kid's movie. This would be one of those action-packed thrillers. Whether it was a megalodon or a basking shark or just a big mahi-mahi, this was an amazing thing that took place in the book of Jonah. But maybe for you, the problem isn't that you see Jonah like a kid's, kid's kind of show. The problem for you in reading Jonah is the problem you have with a lot of the Old Testament, and that is you read it kind of flat. You read the text as it's very one-dimensional. You're so used to the story, or, you, or you, when you hear the word story, you think made up. You're so familiar with it, you don't realize how earthy and gritty these texts really were, especially for the original audiences who heard them, how hated the Ninevites were. So to hear that God's mercy extended to these people, you don't feel the sense of injustice and, and wrongness about that. Because after all, when you read it, the Ninevites seem to be behaving the way they should in Bible stories. They, they respond positively to God. So you say, how, can, how bad could they be? Or when you read Jonah, you don't realize what a good, upright man he probably was. Because when we read the, this, this story, which by the way, many scholars say is autobiographical, that Jonah himself penned this, and, and he casts himself deliberately in all honest brutality because he was really repentant and regretted the fact that he acted like adult for the most part. So you don't see the real dynamism of life. You read this like you read a lot of Old Testament. It's just kind of flat. It's just what it is. And so we want to spend five weeks, six weeks studying this passage, studying this book to get into the skin of it so we can hear the message. So this morning, by way of introduction, we need to answer three legitimate questions when it comes to Jonah. There's the question of historicity. Did this really happen? This is some amazing stuff. We have to answer, secondly, after the question of historicity, we have to answer the question of canonicity. Jonah does not fit in the flow of, of prophetic literature as we find it in the Bible. So how does this book fit with everything else? 
And then finally, after, after asking about the historicity and the canonicity, we have to ask, okay, how does this apply? What's the applicability of this book? How do we respond to this book? What's the intention that we should feel when we read this book? So that's the three questions we need to answer by way of our introduction this morning. Let's look at them one at a time. First, we're going to answer the question of the historicity of Jonah. Did this really happen? Now, when people read the book of Jonah, they're divided into two uh, broad camps of disbelief or, or, or challenge. The first is the majority is the point of disbelief is in the actual fish that swallows Jonah. The second uh, group of, that people have struggles with this book is certainly the minority, and it's mainly made up of preachers, and that is an entire city responding to one sermon being preached. Okay, so that's just, both of those are amazing miracles in my mind. The second one is more miraculous than the first, but let's handle them one at a time. Let's deal with the fish. You may have heard, if you've been a, a Christian for a while, that there's like some stories that have gone around called the modern Jonah. Well, I've heard about these, and apparently in the 1800s, there was a man by the name of James Bartley, and he fished, or he, set, he was a sailor on a fishing vessel called the Star of the East that was birthed in London, and uh, apparently on a fishing expedition, he was thrown overboard and swallowed by a whale. Uh, they were able to rescue James a day and a half later when they caught the same whale and gutted it, and out came James Bartley. And apparently, this was so well known that it actually made it into some older commentaries and Christian reference works. Now, the reason this was so, so important is because it seemed to lend credibility to the reality of the book of Jonah. If this just happened in, in London in the 1800s, then certainly what happened in Jonah must be true. It makes sense, but the reality is there, there really isn't any hard evidence that this actually took place. There was a, a fishing vessel by the Star of the East birthed in London, but it, there's no evidence of James Bartley uh, coming out of the whale, being sent to the hospital and all of that. It's just, uh, by virtue of being repeated over and over again, it took on a kind of sense of credibility, but the reality is we actually don't know. Now, there have been attempts to, as I did earlier, identify, well, what kind of fish could do this kind of thing? But the reality is, friends, we have to just admit that we don't know. This is a miracle. Jonah chapter 1, 17, verse 17, it simply says that God appointed a great fish to swallow up Jonah. And at the end of the day, we have to accept the reality that whether God miraculously created one on the spot years earlier, had crafted this particular fish to do this, we don't know. It just took place, and we're willing to be okay with mystery there. I usually tell people when they struggle with these kinds of things, you know, we live in a rational age and we want rock-solid answers for everything. I usually say, look, if you can believe the first 10 words of your Bible, what are you struggling about this for, right? You know the first 10 words, right? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the earth. So if you're fine with that, I have, there's no reason God can't make a fish big enough to swallow a man. That seems to make sense, but honestly, I think the biggest reason we believe in the historicity of this narrative is because Jesus Christ did. In Matthew chapter 12, verse 38, let me read it to you. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered Jesus saying, teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But Jesus answered them, an evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. 
Look at verse 40. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. The men of Nineveh will rise up at the judgment with this generation and condemn it. For they repented at the preaching of Jonah, and behold, something greater than Jonah is here. So you notice, by the way, Jesus is addressing these religious leaders, and he's directly alluding to the two points of disbelief that people have with the Jonah narrative. Jesus is saying, Jonah spent that time in the whale, in the fish, the megalodon, the basket shark, who knows? And he's saying that the city of Nineveh had repented, and they will judge you if you do not repent because something greater than Jonah is here. So if Jesus himself viewed this, this passage as historical, I don't think we have any other vantage point or perspective that's going to be better than Jesus. So we believe in the historicity of this text because Jesus himself believed the historicity of this text. Secondly, this whole city turning in revival. Is that, what's going on there? So Jesus believed in the fish, and now we have this, this city of Nineveh. Surely there's got to be some evidence that this actually took place in history. Well, if you're a note taker, write down 2 Kings chapter 14 and verse 25. That, that is, by the way, the, the only other reference to Jonah, son of Amittai, the prophet, that we're looking at here. And this is in the reign of Jeroboam II that talks about Jonah's prophetic ministry. It doesn't allude to this particular narrative, but it talks about Jonah and his prophetic ministry. And it, it directly locates Jonah in the reign of Jeroboam II. So we're looking at early, the, the middle early part of the 8th century BC. So he, Jonah is a contemporary with Amos the prophet and Hosea the prophet. Now, this was a very prosperous time for Israel. Let me put this map on the screen behind you just to locate yourself. So we have two cities on the map. On the bottom, you see Israel. You're kind of familiar with this. I wanted to locate where Nineveh was for you so you could see it. And then in the upper left, I have what says modern-day Turkey so you can orient yourself with the, 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 the world as we understand it. So 2 Kings 14.25 says that, that mentions Jonah in the reign of Jeroboam II as they were expanding the borders of Israel and claiming back really what David and even Solomon had. So this was a prosperous time in the nation of Israel. And the reason that this was possible, Ace, can you put up the other slide, was that prior to this, the Arameans were constantly attacking the northern territories of Israel. So Israel was always unable to expand itself. They, you know, this is the divided monarchy. Well, um, in Assyria, Adad-Nirari III, Adad-Nirari III became the, the emperor of, of Assyria, and upon assuming his command, he launched an aggressive campaign against the Arameans, and he basically wiped them out. So let's put up the next slide. This is the early Assyrian Empire. You can see it was a vast empire, and they wiped out the Arameans. And so this allowed Israel to get some relief, and they began to expand their borders, and they mentioned Jonah's prophetic ministry during this time. Now, Assyrians stopped there. We're talking seven, you know, these dates are we're, we're basically 750s to mid-760s. They stopped there uh, from their actual full conquest. This last map will show you the full expansion of the Assyrian Empire. Now, Assyria, if you, if you Bible scholars remember, was the empire that decimated Israel in 722 BC. This, Jonah takes place before that. So let's get back the other slide, Asa, the, the red one. 
So this is Assyrian's early empire. What had happened was, as they were coming south to expand into Egypt and take over the then-known world, they destroyed the Arameans. This gave Israel relief. They started to expand their borders. But after um, Adad-Nirari III, uh, Assyria had a series of weak kings. Not only did they have succession problems, but for 40 years after Nerari III, they had famine, disease, epidemic, internal revolts. So everything started to go sideways for them. Just as things were going sideways internally, to the north of the Assyrian Empire, some other uh, Mesopotamian Empire grew in power. I couldn't remember the name of the empire. I didn't write it down, sorry. But uh, it rivaled Assyria's power. So they had to turn their attention away from Israel and back to the north to defend themselves, allowing Israel to grow. But not only did Assyria have all these internal political strife, the the revolts, their economy tanked, the disease and the famine, They also had, and they had external problems with competing empires, they had an omen that in their mind spelled certain doom. We know this because the Assyrian annals record it. June 15, 763, they experienced an absolute uh, complete solar eclipse, followed by an entire year of famine and drought. So these people were on the ropes. Internally, they were falling apart. Externally, they had enemies all around them. They have an omen in the sky. They have famine and drought. And in comes a man who says, in 40 days, Nineveh will be overthrown. They were ripe for any kind of lifeline to survive. Interesting to note, Nineveh experienced its greatest time of its greatest century of prosperity from this time until its eventual fall, recorded by the prophet Nahum, by the way. So what you have is this historic reality of the city turning at this highest peak when there's political unrest, economic ruin. They were concerned about their stability, and here came a prophet from God after an omen in the sky foreboding their doom. So yes, Matthew 12, Jesus says, this is historical. And as we look in history, we see these events coming together. So there is strong historical precedent for the events recorded in the book of Jonah. Now, obviously, the biblical writers are not putting that information in. We have to go to to history to figure these things out because they're not concerned with that. They are assuming you are believing the word of God. I think that's a good assumption but we also want you to see that history bears out the very records we have here. So that's the question of the historicity of Jonah. Now we need to deal with the question of canonicity. Where does Jonah fit? Because this guy does not fit any of the other prophetic books. Jonah, this book, is found in the section called the Minor Prophets. In the Hebrew Bible, it's called the Book of the Twelve. The Minor Prophets goes from Hosea the prophet, followed all the way up to the, uh, Malachi, which ends the Old Testament. Now, they're called the minor prophets, not because they they weren't that important. They were called the minor prophets because in terms of the the length of their message, their oracles, it was much smaller than the major prophets, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, Daniel, and Isaiah. So, Jonah is one of the minor prophets, but Jonah is unique because he's unlike any of the other prophets in that Jonah consistently disobeys, at least what we see here, he's disobeying the Lord. Regardless of what God asked of his prophets, they obeyed. So you have Jeremiah in chapter 20, verse 9, in a a very difficult ministry. 
And Jeremiah says, he cannot but proclaim the word of the Lord. If he holds it in, it burns him in his bones. And so he has to proclaim God's word. And so he does that. Hosea chapter 1 verse 2, God tells Hosea to marry a prostitute so that his relationship to the prostitute is a visible metaphor to all of God's broken-hearted faithfulness to his people. So reluctantly, Hosea obeys and marries Gomer the prostitute. In Isaiah chapter 20, verse 3, it's recorded for us that Isaiah prophesied uh, and used himself as a visible illustration of the nakedness of Israel by what running around in the nude. Every one of these prophets, some more reluctantly than others, obeyed the word of the Lord that came to them, except Jonah. And did you hear three times Jonah saying how he disobeyed the Lord. Adam kind of emphasized it in chapter 1, verse 3. He said, I went away from the Lord. I went to Tarshish. I went to Tarshish. I went down to Tarshish, which on the map, I forgot to put Tarshish on it. It is southwest, directly opposite direction of Nineveh. So Jonah, in writing this book, autobiographically looking back, saying, He's being very honest. I denied the Lord, not once, not twice, but three times I tried to get away from him. So in a lot of ways, Jonah just doesn't fit the character of a lot of these prophets, nor is the style of Jonah fit. Jonah doesn't read like a lot of the prophets. If you're familiar with them, they're written like oracles and, and prophecies, and, 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 and Jonah's written like an action movie in a lot of ways. So why is he fit here? Well, that's because of the two themes that run through this book that are very strong. Number one, how do divine mercy and divine justice interact without one canceling out the other? In other words, how does God condemn sin but save sinners? How does God condemn sin but save sinners? The second theme, the second question that we wrestle with in Jonah is this God's universal sovereignty and yet His particular love for His people. How do those two interact without one canceling out the other? In other words, God being Lord over all, yet displaying a unique affection and attention to a specific group. Friends, these are themes that run all the way through all the prophetic literature, and that's why Jonah is right where he needs to be in the book of the prophets that make up about half of the Old Testament canon. So that's the historicity. That's the canonicity. Now let's talk about what's our response? What is the application? How should we respond to Jonah? And it's very easy to miss this. It's it's very easy to miss the intimate relationship that God is developing with His prophet here because we're seeing just this, this massive fish. We're seeing this raging storm, this citywide revival, and this repentance But you notice that the focus of the whole book is on how Jonah's responding to that? I mean, think about it. Nineveh, the soon-to-be capital of Assyria, the most formidable empire of the ancient Near East, turns to Yahweh, and yet it's all about how Jonah is processing this and God working with his servant. And the subtitle for our series, you see it in your bulletin, is God's scandalous mercy, right? But friends, here's the real question. To whom does this mercy apply that makes it so scandalous? Is it to the Ninevites or is it to Jonah himself? 
And as readers, we, we can't help but read this, these four chapters and ask the question, who am I more like? Which are you? Are you the Ninevites who blow God off and deny Him and worship gods of your own making? Or are you like Jonah, this, this rebellious prophet who proclaims obedience and faithfulness, but that's often held hostage to his own moods and desires and preferences? Regardless of, of which you are, do you see God's mercy to you as scandalous? Or do you somehow feel entitled to it? Does God somehow owe you? Or do you truly believe that it is you that owes God? Friends, how you answer that question will determine how you understand anything that God says in His Word. Is God's mercy to you an object of scandal that just blows your mind? Or do you feel a sense that it's, you're entitled to it? You should get this. I noted earlier that Jesus does compare his ministry to, to, to Jonas in Matthew chapter 12. When the religious leaders challenge Jesus for a sign, he says, I'm not going to give you any sign except the sign of Jonah. How God had delivered Jonah from the sea through the fish three days. How God had delivered the city of Nineveh from destruction after Jonah's visit of three days. And how God would deliver all those who repent of their sin and believe in Christ's death and resurrection, which would occur after three days. You see, like Jonah, Jesus was another prophet from God, going to God's enemies, proclaiming the good news of God's salvation from their coming judgment if they would believe. Friends, that is our response just our response is the same as the Ninevites so long ago. Believe God's word of judgment against us. Friends, that is the right response to Jonah. Believe God's word of judgment against you. You and I, friend, have sinned against God. We have run from him, we hide from him, and we deserve to be cast out into our own sea of destruction. That is our response. You must believe God's word of judgment against you and equally important so that you can believe in God's word of salvation for you. Friends, if, if you don't believe in God's judgment against you, if you don't believe that you need to be saved, then what did you need a savior for? Ask yourself that question if you consider yourself a Christian. From what were you saved? Maybe a life of meaninglessness. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Maybe I'll save from hell. Well, that's not what the Bible teaches. Friends, the Bible teaches that we were saved from the just wrath of God that we deserved because we denied Him, we disobeyed Him, and we tried to hide from Him. And we need to be like the Ninevites who believe God's word of judgment against us so we can believe God's word of salvation is for us. Friends, if you don't know that you need to be saved, then you don't need a Savior. If you find in your heart that you don't cherish Jesus Christ, it's because you never believed you needed saving. But if you look at yourself in a mirror, if you're being honest with yourself like Jonah was in chapter 2, 
you realize you need a Savior desperately. And the only way you get there is first to believe, like the Ninevites, that there is judgment coming and I will be overthrown. And yet, did you see, did you see what they said in chapter 3, verse 5? And the people of Nineveh believed God. God not only relented from the, the, the judgment to come, the Ninevites experienced a century of, of flourishing unlike they'd ever experienced. And sadly, unfortunately, though, until they turned away again from him and judgment finally came. Notice the book closes with Jonah lamenting after seeing somehow that God relented. He says, see, this is why I didn't want to preach because I knew they were going to respond and I knew you were going to be merciful and kind. Jonah had some issues to work through, didn't he? Chapter 4, verse 2, Jonah describes this God. You are gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and relenting from disaster. Jonah knew this because after all, like he said on his own lips, the key verse of the book of Jonah, friends, it might be the key verse of the entire Old Testament, chapter 2, verse 9, Jonah said, salvation is of the Lord, which really is a positive way of saying that God's mercy is scandalous. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the honesty of a, a man like Jonah. Lord, it gives us hope, Father, that that we ourselves in this room, we might look down on our noses at others, maybe not as bad as the Ninevites, maybe not as bad as Jonah did. We look at Jonah and we see a prophet we can relate with. Father, a sense of racial pride that he had against the Ninevites, a sense of superiority, not gracious, not wanting the gospel, not wanting salvation and blessing to flow to others, but to hoard it for himself. Well, that resonates with us, yet at the same time, we see your merciful, kind act and character to change Jonah's heart as you change the Ninevites. Father, this book overflows with mercy. Father, we pray as we are marinating our souls in it for the next five or six weeks that we would become a people of mercy as well. Father, that we would be motivated, that we would take the gospel message as it, as it goes through our own souls and we, we ch- are changed and transformed, that we would long to see it go beyond the borders of your people into everywhere. So, Father, we thank you for this amazing book. We look forward to studying it. We look forward to learning from our brother. We look forward to the transformation to be more like Jesus, and we thank you for it in his name. Amen. Thanks for listening to this message from Christ Community Church of Laguna Hills. For more information and resources from Christ Community, visit us at www.ccclh.org.